Um, it's uh, also in your Bible, if you'd like to bring that sometime and read along in there. So I encourage you, um, I encourage you, as I often do, to bring a Bible with you and not just rely on the passage that's printed in the, in the bulletin because um, you might want to flip around and uh, look at some other stuff that I might make reference to um, or just look at the context, what, what happens before and after. But um, we're looking at Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Last week we looked at how uh, Jesus was in Bethany. Um, this is just in, in the, the days before he is getting ready to go to the cross and die, and he was in Bethany and is anointed by Mary, um, and, uh, and he says, this is a beautiful thing that she has done because she's anointed me in preparation for my burial, and he is looking forward towards, not looking forward to it, but looking towards the fact that he is about to die, and, um, and things are getting darker and darker as you're reading through the book of Matthew here. Um, but uh, right after that, um, Jesus is then betrayed by Judas, who, um, who goes and agrees to sell him out, basically, for 30 pieces of silver. And, uh, and then he c- celebrates the Passover with his disciples, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then after doing that, he then again reminds the disciples that he's about to be struck down, and they're all going to be scattered. And at that, all the disciples are like, no, never. We'll never abandon you. We'll never leave you. And he's like, Peter, even you, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. And, and Peter's like, I will never do that. Never. I will never let you down, Jesus. And it says all of the other disciples are like agreeing with him. No way. We're never going to let you down, Jesus. We're going to stick with you to the end. And then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So listen to God's word as I read from Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we we pray that you would meet us, that each and every person in here this morning would be met by your spirit as we look at these words. We pray that you would bring us comfort. We pray that you would impress upon us the reality of your presence, and we pray that you would help us to see how you want us to respond. 
and that we would indeed respond. Um, we pray that, that, that there, there would not be a single person who walks out of here this morning unchanged because we've met with you, the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you can and picture it in your mind, it's, it's, a, it's a cartoon if you can picture it, but it's a, it's a beautiful, idyllic forest. You know, the sun is shining, it's peering through the trees. The trees are these beautiful trees with green leaves all over them. There's green grass everywhere underneath with all these different beautiful colored flowers, really colorful flowers. And there's a, a, a nice dirt path winding through the forest and it's, you know, beautifully uh, you know, clean, if you can call it a clean dirt path. There's like nothing on it. And there's a young maiden singing and dancing as she, you know, frolics through the forest. And she's singing about love's first kiss and, uh, and a, a happily ever after. That's all she can think about. That her, her life is perfect. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's no brokenness. There's no sorrow and, and all she can think about is a happily ever after. This is the, the beginning of a movie. If you've seen it, it's like 15 years old, but it's a movie called Enchanted. I don't know if you've uh, ever seen that movie. But it starts off in, in kind of a cartoon world where there's this, you know, the, the, the typical Disney princess. And, and, uh, and eventually, just shortly after she's, you know, dancing through the forest, not by herself, she's with a bunch of animals who are dancing along with her, right? Um, she is pushed down this pit, and, uh, and, and as she falls through this pit, she transforms. She's no longer a cartoon, and she transforms into a real person. And she ends up standing in the middle of a street in New York City. And, uh, and she's standing in the street, and she's immediately confronted with the reality of a world that is broken. You know, she, she's almost run over by one car, another car honks at her, and then two cars just like slam into each other right in front of her. And she's completely ill-equipped to deal with the reality of brokenness and pain and sorrow because she's just been living in a happily ever after land her whole life, right? Um, I think sometimes I get the sense that people think that to be a Christian means that you have to leave the, the, the reality of brokenness and pain and you have to just live in some cartoon reality where it's only happily ever after. There's no pain. You know, we, I, I get that sense because as, as, I, as I, I hear people talk, you know, people, people who aren't Christians, I think their view of Christians is that we just like live in a, a, a world that is not real. Um, and we don't, you know, we just ignore the fact that the world is broken and painful and, and there's a lot of sorrow in the world. Um, and maybe there's some truth to that because I think as, as Christians, I think a lot of us, we do tend to want to avoid uh, those things. Maybe those pain and sorrow make us feel awkward. We don't ha know how to deal with it. Um, we'd rather not deal with it. But if you really read the Bible and you actually read it, you will notice that God does not ignore the fact that life hurts. God does not ignore the fact that life hurts hurts, that the world is broken, that it is full of sorrow and pain. I don't think Jesus expects any of us to step out of the real world and, and try to travel up that well and only live in the cartoon world, in a fantasy world where, there's, where, where we just ignore all that is broken and all that makes us sad. Um, and Jesus himself was a man who was acquainted with sorrow, right? And we see him here now in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, leaning into his sorrow and pain. Um, and I think that God wants to use Jesus' sorrow here to teach us some things. 
to teach us some things about the nature of sorrow and, and how to respond to sorrow and sadness in our lives. And also the importance of, you know, the, the importance of Jesus's sorrow here. You know, why was he so sorrowful? And, um, and, and in the midst of his sorrow, what gives us hope? And that's what I want to look at this morning. Just the, what, is, what is Jesus's sorrow here? You know, it says in verse 38, his, he, said, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. What does his sorrow teach us? Um, I think the first thing that strikes me is the reality of Jesus' sorrow. The reality of Jesus' sorrow. Um, verse 37, first of all, it says, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And as I just read, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus experienced deep sorrow, sadness, pain. He says, even to death, he was, he was so troubled. He was hurting so much. He felt like his soul was crushed. How could he possibly go on? Even to death, that's how sorrowful he was. He was hurting deeply. And I think, you know, if Jesus felt this kind of sorrow then I have to believe that it's okay for me to feel it too. Um, when I am faced with painful things in my life, when I'm faced with brokenness in my life, it's okay for me to feel sorrow as well. It's, it's, not, it's not just a sinful thing to feel sorrow and sadness. Actually, we can feel deep sorrow and, and respond to it in a way that, that honors God and loves him because Jesus did. And so Jesus shows us that, that sorrow isn't something that, that, we, um, that, that is wrong in and of itself, that is sinful in and of itself. It's a feeling that, that it's okay for us to actually lean into. Um, but more than that, if Jesus felt this kind of sorrow, then as I experience sorrow and sadness and pain in my own life over all sorts of different things, it's incredibly comforting because I know that Jesus knows how I feel. Jesus felt something similar to what I, what I have felt at different times in my life when I've been really in pain and sad and sorrowful about all sorts of different things. Um, and, and that's what I just you know, start off when I ask you guys, when was the last time you felt really, really sad? When was the last time that you cried because of something that was so terrible that was happening. Um, when was the last time you experienced deep sorrow in your life? I mean, I've, I've experienced it in all sorts, all sorts of different times. You know, just in, in things that we've gone through as a church, there have been moments when I've been like, ah, like I've been just living day to day, just feeling like this massive burden crushing me. Big things, small things in the church that are just discouraging and sad. Um, as I watch people that I care about who struggle and I'm helpless to help them and they are hurting and in pain, whether it's in my, in my you know, immediate family or, or in our church family, as I watch people hurt, it, it brings me deep sorrow and it hurts. I remember a bunch of, like, well, it's about eight years ago now, the, the last year of my mom's life when she was uh, dealing with the effects of a, a brain tumor. And 
that whole year was just so, so sad. When she was, you know, for, for a whole year, she wasn't who she used to be. And there was real loss. And, and we would, uh, you know, Kim and I would drive down there, uh, down to my mom and dad's house regularly, and, and just to kind of hang out with, with her, with her and my dad. And, and just on the way down there, I, I would often cry. Um, at, the, at the loss that we had experienced and we're anticipating experiencing. And, um, you know, all of us have things like that. I remember when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, I, there were real serious moments when I, I was just like so sad. And I was just like, I felt, honestly, I felt like sorrow unto death when I was, in, when I was a teenager. Uh, uh, just about the fact that my life wasn't what I wanted it to be. And it wasn't what it should be. And, and you know, looking back on it, I can be like, come on, Jeff, the, the things you were worried about were not that big a deal, but they were a big deal to me back then. Um, and all of these things, you know, all of these things, it's helpful to remember that in the midst of my, the pain of my heart and my heartache, Jesus felt something similar. And he understood and he understands exactly how I'm feeling. It's, it's helpful to know that he knows me like that. And he, he's, he's not like, you know, just get over it. <laughs> that he weeps with me and has wept with me. His sorrow was real. And, and it's in, I think it can be encouraging, comforting to remember that as I, as I cry um, even, to, even today, you know, I, I've, I've struggled my whole life with moments of sadness, with times of sadness, where I will just, I don't know how many of you guys deal with this, but there's some days when I wake up and I'm just like, I, like I tell Cam, I'm just like, I'm not feeling good today. You know, like I'm on the verge of tears. <laughs> and I can't really even explain why, you know. Um, and and it's, it's helpful to remember, Jesus knows how I feel. And he's felt that too. Have any of you guys ever felt like that? Jesus' sorrow is real, and his comfort is real. Um, but I think it's also helpful to look at how did he respond to his sorrow? How did he respond to it, and what is that, how does that help me respond to mine? Um, what did he do in response to his feelings and his pain? Well, the first thing that's obvious is he prayed, Right? Um, that's what he's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane to do. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane to go and talk to God, to talk to his father. He goes, he moves towards God. And, and this is the problem for a lot of us in the midst of our sorrow when we're feeling pain and we're upset. Um, a lot of us, it, it pushes us away from God. We get angry with God. We're like, God, why are you treating me like this? Why is this happening to me after I've tried to serve you faithfully or whatever? And, 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 it, and it, you know, we allow it to drive a wedge between us and God. But really, the best thing for us to do, the most healthy thing for us to do in the midst of our sorrow is to move towards him and to pray. That's what Jesus does in the midst of his sorrow. He, he goes to God. He goes to God and he prays. And I think that's one of the reasons that God allows us to experience suffering and, and sorrow is to, is to kind of cement us in our relationship with him. 
I, I don't know how many of you guys, you know, when, when you were younger, and, I mean, if you guys work with wood now. I remember when I, when I was in middle school, we had, uh, I had a woodworking class. And sometimes when you would want to like put two pieces of wood together, um, you couldn't just, you know, put some glue on there and stick them together and you're good. You have to put some wood glue on there and you put them together and then you put them in like a, a vise or a clamp that like holds them together and presses them tightly together and you have to leave it like that, like overnight. And then once, you know, you take the vise off, they're like solid, they're like sticking together, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that God allows us to experience sorrow. If we will move towards him in the midst of our sorrow, the sorrow pushes us, it presses us like a vice our hearts towards his, that our relationship with him would be solidified and made even more real. And so that's the first thing Jesus does. He moves towards his father. Um, but what I want to highlight about this fact is he, as he goes towards God, he starts his prayer just like he teaches his disciples to pray. Remember when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray back in the, the Sermon on the Mount? What's the first thing he tells them? How, how does he tell them to address God? He says, our father, right? Our father. And that's how Jesus addresses God, his father, right? That's the first thing he does. And that's the first thing he puts in his mind as he goes to pray. He reminds himself of, of his relationship to God the Father. You, you are my father. You care about me. You will provide for me. You know what I'm going through. You, you're present with me. I'm your child, and I think that's key for us in the midst of our sorrow. It's not just to pray, but to go to God and, and first and foremost remind ourselves of our relationship to him. That I am his beloved child. That he cares deeply about me. Right? He cares deeply about me as his child. For a lot of, for a lot of time, when I go to God in the midst of my sorrow, when I, when I do the right thing and, and pray to him, um, I often treat him as just the fix-it guy, you know? Just deal with this, God. Make this better. Fix it. Give me relief from what I'm dealing with. But Jesus shows us that the, the most healthy thing for us to do, first and foremost, is not just to go to God to, to fix our lives, but to go to him, reminding ourselves that he loves us, that he is our father. That that's the foundational relationship that all of life must revolve around. And so that's what Jesus does. He moves towards God. He moves, moves towards his father who cares about him, who loves him, who he knows is going to stick with him and won't let him down. But one other thing that I want to just mention that Jesus does in addition to prayer is he seeks out people. He, he gathers people around him in the midst of his sorrow, Right? When he goes to the Gethsemane, what does he do? He, he goes with his disciples. Verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And then he, uh, when he goes over to this specific place to pray, he takes with him Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He grabs people and brings them close in the midst of his sorrow. And that's absolutely what we need to do. Again, it's so tempting for us. When, when we're hurting deeply, for a lot of us, it's tempting for us to push people away. It's tempting for us to be like, it's, it's too awkward. I don't, want to, I don't want them to see me hurting. I've mentioned this before. It's, it's so, it makes me so sad to hear some people be like, oh, I couldn't come to church because I don't want, to, want people to see me. You know, I don't want people to see me cry. 
because life is just so hard right now. And it makes me so sad to hear that because this is exactly where we need to be when we are feeling deep sorrow. This is exactly where we need to be with people, with friends, that they might help carry our burden, that they might put their arms around us and hold us up. Even Jesus, right? Even Jesus says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Even Jesus, he needs his disciples to be with him in the midst of his pain. If Jesus needs people to be with him, then how much more do we? How much more do we? I think the catch-22 is that as much as we need people in the midst of our pain, people are going to, without fail, fail us. Right? That's the catch-22. We need them, but they're also going to fail us, just like they failed Jesus, right? He, he brought them close. He's like, guys, be with me. I need you to be present with me. As I'm hurting, just all, you know, it says, when it, when it says, watch with me, uh, another translation, just stay awake with me. That's all he's asking them to do, just stay awake. Just a few verses before, they're like, we're never going to let you down, Jesus. We're never going to deny you. We're going to go, we'll die with you if we have to. We're going to stand up to the authorities. Don't worry about it, Jesus. We're going to be there. And now they're sleeping. They couldn't even stay awake. They couldn't even stay awake. And that's the, that's the, the catch-22 for all of us. We, we need people, and yet people are never going to be enough. <laughs> and they are going to fail us. And it's, and it's going to make it that much harder to, to kind of grab people to be near us next time. And yet Jesus shows us we need to continue to do it. We need to continue to make ourselves vulnerable to people around us, to, to care for us, to hold us up, to love us, um, even though they will fail. They will fail. Just like the disciples failed Jesus. Um, and, and, and that brings me to the reason for Jesus' sorrow. Um, there are a lot of reasons here, just even in this passage, for Jesus to be sorrowful, even unto death. Like I just said, you know, the disciples, these guys who were supposed to be loyal to him, those guys who, were, who, were, who, were, who he had spent so much time with, he had invested in them, they were his closest friends. He's like, guys, just, just stay with me, just stay awake. And they couldn't even do that. How discouraging had that to, be, had that to have been to Jesus. After he's, he's already feeling so sorrowful, he, he doesn't even have the support <laughs> of his disciples. They can't even stay awake to be present with him. You know, that had to compound his sorrow. And then at the very end of this passage, what happens? When he says, sleep and take your rest later on, see the hours at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Not only is Jesus, you know, let down by his closest friends, but another one of his closest friends actually sells him out and, and shows up right then. To, to deliver him to the authorities, to deliver him to the, the people who are going to kill him. I mean, that's, that's bad enough, right? But actually, those things, his, his disciples letting him down, their weakness, and, and, and uh, Judas's betrayal, those are actually just surfacey symptoms of something much worse that Jesus was feeling sorrowful about. And he makes reference to it in his prayer. In his very prayer, he says in verse 39, my father, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And then again, when he prays again, in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, what's he talking about? Why is he making reference to this cup, to drinking from a cup? And I think that's the thing that's making him more sorrowful than anything else. That's the thing that's crushing his soul is this idea of this cup and having to drink what's in it. So what is he referring to? What is he alluding to? I mean, if, if you are a, 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 an Israelite who is reading the book of Matthew, Matthew is, is directed towards Jewish people um, as he uses a lot of references to the Old Testament. Um, but this would be another one of those references. If you're, if you're a Jewish person reading this and you've read your Old Testament, you would be like, I, I've heard God talk about cups before in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, numerous times, the prophets talk about how God's judgment is going to be like a cup filled and, and, and basically given to his enemies. The nations will drink from this cup of God's wrath, of his judgment against their wickedness and against their sin. And it's going to make them stagger. And so drinking from this cup is to drink from the wrath of God, from God's judgment against all wickedness and sin. It happens numerous times in the Old Testament. There's a reference to this. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. As he's looking towards his arrest and his, his rejection and his death on the cross, that is what he's anticipating. He's anticipating his death on the cross being his drinking in the judgment of God, God's wrath upon sin and wickedness, on all of the sin and wickedness of his people. And yes, it's, it's, it's the, some of those symptoms are the, the weakness of his disciples and their failure to do what they said, the, the betrayal of Judas, but, it, but it's, it's throughout history. All of our failures, all of our sin, our failure to love God, to pay attention to him, our selfishness, our greed, the ways we hurt one another. Jesus is preparing to drink down the judgment of God on all of that. And that's what brings him the deepest sorrow. That's what makes him feel crushed to death. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the, if you're familiar with the story, there's four children who travel from the real world into another world, into Narnia. And in this world, there's a wicked witch, a white witch, who has cast a, a spell, a curse on all of the land where it's always winter and never Christmas, right? I've, I've made reference to this before. You've probably read it. And the four children go into this world and, uh, and there are these prophecies about how the, the great king, Aslan, this lion is going to come back and he's going to make all things right. He's going to defeat the witch. But, but one of the kids, Edmund, he's kind of a spoiled brat. He's kind of mean to his brothers and sisters. He's He's, uh, he's, he's very self-centered. He, he meets the witch, and he thinks the witch can give him everything that he wants. And so he betrays his siblings and the rest of the good creatures of Narnia, and he goes to the witch to, try to, to basically try to betray them because he thinks the witch will give him everything he wants and needs. And he is uh, let down, and, and she takes him and puts him in jail. And... Uh, and she, um, and, and it's, it, it's, it's all just a mess. And, um, and his, his siblings, they, they finally meet Aslan. And the, the youngest sister, Lucy, goes to Aslan, can you do anything to help him? 
Can anything be done to help him, to save Edmund? And Aslan says, all shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. All shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. They have no idea what Aslan is going to have to do in order to rescue Edmund. And as Lucy ends up watching Aslan, what, what Aslan ends up having to do is he, he trades himself to the witch for Edmund. He allows the witch's creatures to take him and bind him and shave his mane and humiliate him and spit on him and make fun of him and then to be dragged onto an altar and then for the witch to plunge a knife into him and kill him. This great, beautiful, powerful king. All shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. And as they watch, as Lucy watches from a distance, she sees just this deep sadness in Aslan's eyes as he's killed. This is what Jesus is facing. As he goes to the cross, he's, you know, he's saying, all shall be done to save his people, to save you, to save me. But it's, it's way harder than we could even imagine. We can't even fathom what Jesus was facing when he faced the prospect of being hung on a cross and taking upon himself the judgment for all of our sin so that we would be rescued in trading himself for us, his life for ours. This is the reason for Jesus' sorrow as he prepares to take upon himself the judgment we deserve so that we could be set free. But even in his sorrow as he's facing this cup, we also see one other thing. We see the righteousness of Jesus. We see the righteousness of Jesus. In his pain, he asks the Father, is, is there any way to avoid what he's about to endure? Take this cup, let this cup pass from me, right? Nevertheless, what does he say? Not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. And then again, he says, if this, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, we hear echoes of the Lord's prayer here. Not my will, but yours. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. Jesus obeys God perfectly, no matter how difficult it's going to be, no matter how painful it's going to be, no matter how, how much sorrow he feels right now, he obeys perfectly. This, pa this passage, as well as being about the disciples' failure, is about the obedience and the triumph of Jesus. It's about Jesus' righteousness. It's about the fact that he, he was perfect throughout his entire life up until the very end in this garden where he's tempted to be like, no, it's too much. But instead, he says, I'm going to do it. If it's your will, God, I'm going to do it. I will obey. We often look at the cross and we, and we say, yes, that is where Jesus died for my sins. If you're a Christian, you, you look at the cross, you say, Jesus died to pay for my sins. And because of the cross, I am forgiven. My guilt has been washed away, right? But guys, that's actually not enough. We don't just need forgiveness. We need God's acceptance and his favor. And in order to get his favor, what we need is righteousness. 
We need credit for, for, for perfect obedience, and, and none of us are capable of doing that. And so Jesus, not only has he died on the cross to pay for our sins, but he has lived a life of perfect obedience, even to the point of this garden, right? Where he perfectly obeys. He has an opportunity to say, nope, not going to do it. But he obeys. And what he does here is he reverses what was done once before in another garden way earlier. At the beginning of the Bible, you know, the, the, the garden at the beginning of all things when God creates everything and, and he puts Adam and Eve in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. And what happens? Adam has an opportunity to be faithful. God gives him a command. He has an opportunity to be faithful to God and to resist temptation and, and, to, and to obey God. But what does he do? He says, no, not your will, but mine. I'm going to put my will above everything else. And that's what happens here. We have Jesus now, the second Adam, in another garden here. And he says, I'm going to obey. Not my will, but yours, Father. And it's because of Jesus' obedience, it's because of Jesus' righteousness that, that we, if we accept what he has done for us, that we now have God's complete and total failure. I mean, favor. Even though we are failures. That's what was really on my mind. How can that be possible? Because I am such a failure. You know, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. No matter how much I want to do what is right, I fail every single day of my life. And yet, because of Jesus' obedience, God looks at me and he sees me as righteous. And he loves me just as much as he loves Jesus, the righteous one. This world is full of reasons for sorrow and for grief. And there is, real, real, there is real loss. There is real disappointment. We can be honest about the fact that we, there aren't always birds singing. That there isn't always a joyful, you know, our, our lives aren't always, there's, there's not always an opportunity to sing a joyful musical number with, with singing and dancing animals, right? Actually, that never happens. Because there's a lot of, a lot of difficulty and pain. I don't care how young or old you are. There is absolute, real sorrow. But because of Jesus drinking the cup of God's judgment, because of Jesus saying, your will, not mine, because of his obedience, because of his righteousness, I can know that in the midst of my sorrow, today, God is present. God is present. And I also can know that even though there aren't dancing animals and musical numbers that are choreographed perfectly, I do know that there is going to be a happily ever after. There will be, absolutely. And I need to live in light of that in the midst of the brokenness of right now. When Jesus will return and make everything new, everything right, everything beautiful, everything perfect. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would help us um, help us more than anything else, help us to rest in your lap as our Father. To know that in the midst of our tears that you are faithful and good and that you love us. That you know what we go through 
And we pray that, that even the things that, that cause us pain and sorrow, those things would drive us towards you and that they would just press us against you. That those things would knit our hearts even closer to your heart. Father, we thank you for Jesus who drank the cup of judgment that we deserve and who fulfilled all of your requirements and standards and commands for us. Pray that you would teach us how to rest in him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, We have an opportunity now to to meet Jesus at the Lord's table. And uh, if you...